Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to episode number six of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, October the 23rd and my name is Rudolf. I'm speaking to you from the outskirts of lovely Vienna, Austria's capital. It is my pleasure to have you all back to this, uh, to this new episode and my guest today on the show will be Marlene Sevenbrenner, who has very recently, just a few days ago, released her first book called Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. And it is subtitled The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres. And that's why I called this episode Seven Spheres, because Marlene Seven. Brenner, got it? Okay, good, great. Wow. And now we are going to, well, I'm going to say hello to everyone who is here for the first time. Hello, first timers. It's great to have you. And hello to everyone who is returning customers, regular listeners of the show. It's great to have you back as well. I'm sure both of you, we enjoy the show. And I'm particularly saying hello and thank you to all the patrons of the show, to those of you who helped this show made possible. And if you want to become one of them, please do so. Go to the Patreon website and look for the Thought Hermes podcast, or you go on the Thought Hermes website, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. That's thoughthermes.com. And there you will find the Patreon button and a donation button if you prefer a one-off donation. But um, of course, that's not the only thing you find on that website. You find this episode, you find all the other episodes. Actually, this is the 150th episode here today that I record. Um, and it must be 143 or 44 that are online. There were four or five, uh, six episodes that I that they, they do not longer, ex longer exist on all those podcast outlets where you can listen to this show because they were outdated or whatever the reason was. But um, I believe it's 150 here today. Well, a little, little jubilee here today. And... Um, well, uh, I also wanted to ask you something because um, when we talk about the website, uh, you see the show notes and the great show notes and two things about today's show notes. A, those show notes are um, uh, specially written to for you by Emily. Emily, um, who uh, also will be mentioned on the website itself because, and thank you, Emily, you replied to my call for people who would like to write show notes for one or other episode because um, 
we need that. And uh, as I wrote in the last in the last or two episodes ago, my friend Ursula will not be able to do all the show notes as she has been doing for three seasons, more than 70 episodes. And I'm really grateful for that. She will do from time to time. And uh, uh, but uh, her work and family life doesn't make it possible to do every week as she did so far. So I've asked you, the listeners, to jump in and maybe you want to write those show notes. Uh, if you want to, um, uh, please let me know. You will get the interview once it's recorded in its raw state and you can listen to it and you can make the show notes out of that. And that would be show notes and actually newsletter. And that will be of a great help for me. And your name, you will be mentioned. And if you want, there will be a photo and a little biography. Whatever you want, I will put also on the website. So please do consider that. And thanks a lot to Emily for having done that here today for this episode. And hopefully not the last time. And uh, talking about today's show notes, please do go there because... Um, Marlene Sevenbrenner, she is a painter, she is an artist and, and a hermeticist and a writer. And um, so we are talking about two of her paintings in particular. And in order to make it easier for those of you who would like to see those paintings while we talk about them, it might be interesting to see what we're talking about. You would probably want to have a look at them right away on the on the show notes of this episode. They are both there, so you will be able to see them. Don't miss that. Right, so, well, let's go and play some music to start with. And um, I have asked uh, Marlene if she, what, what kind of music she likes. And she just returned from a trip to Egypt, and uh, she's talking about that trip also in the interview. And that's why I thought it would be a good idea to, and asked her and she said, well, she loved the Nubian music she heard there in Egypt. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. We haven't played that yet. So I'd like to play for you uh, now to start with a traditional Nubian tribal war chant, uh, which was recorded in place in Egypt. And I'm sure you're going to, enjoy that is something completely different from what we sometimes hear here on the show so traditional nubian music to start with a tribal war chant directly from egypt and i can only tell you enjoy Sayadamban, Sindagor 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 Sayad
from Egypt, a Nubian song, uh, recorded live during a performance. Marlene Seven-Bremner is my guest here today, and as I said, it's about her book Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, but also about her art, her life, her background, where she comes from in particular, in regards, of course, to her approach to hermeticism. And we will have a very interesting and nice talk together about all those subjects. And uh, I really invite you to not only listen, but also to watch, to watch the images uh, that she paints, uh, the, the paintings that she does, the oil paintings that she does, on her website at least, because um, uh, the, you have a nice collection there that you should really have a look at. Quite amazing paintings she does. 
Right. And um, well, as usual, I would like to read you a little bit uh, again, in that case, also from the introduction to her book, the introduction, which is titled The Hermetic Path of Self-Initiation. And that's what all it is about. And we speak about that in the interview at length. But now let me read you a few paragraphs to start with from that book, uh, from the book that was just released by Inner Traditions, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great, is at once a man and a myth, a god and a priest, a messenger and a psychopomp. He is the immortal and eternally ancient one to whom this work is most indebted. For Hermes is the heart and tongue of Hermeticism. From the dawn of Egyptian civilization and into the modern era, this beneficent and wise sage has been regarded as an incorporeal divine entity bestowing the secrets of the stars, the sun and the moon, a mediator between the gods and humanity. Yet many who hear the name Hermes Trismegistus have only a vague notion of who this being is. Likewise, Hermetism, the philosophical, religious and mystical tradition attributed to him, is not included in the major religions of the world, seemingly lost somewhere between the lines of Christianity, Gnosticism and Paganism. The name Hermes does not have the same renown as Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Allah, Yahweh or Shiva. For many Hermes is simply the Greek trickster, the inventor of the Lyra, and the messenger of Mount Olympus, also known as Mercury to the Romans. Yet, this god of thieves and shepherds is only a partial aspect of the immense and numinous qualities personified by the greater Hermes, that is, Hermes Trismegistus, whom the Egyptian priest Manetho called the second Hermes. Manetho, whose name means truth of Thoth, attributed the first Hermes to the Egyptian deity Thoth, credited with inventing speech, writing, mathematics, medicine, engineering, astronomy, astrology, magic and alchemy. Thoth was responsible for inscribing on stele the sacred teachings in hieroglyphics. And it was the second Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, who copied the sacred inscriptions into books after the flood which were later translated from Egyptian to Greek. The thrice-great version of Hermes formed when the Greek Hermes and the Egyptian deity Thoth merged during the Hellenistic era, and this composite god, certainly much more vast than the sum of his parts, is revered today in occult circles and by solitary hermetic mysteries, mystics, alchemists, philosophers, magicians, pagans and witches, and we will see in exploring some of the history of Hermeticism, this tradition has gone through various seasons of efflorescence and growth to phases of relative enigma and dormancy. And in the early modern period, Hermetic texts were essentially discredited as mere plagiarism. However, the cult of Hermes lives on in today's underground and emergent currents of esoteric thought, where his name again resounds with meaning. In the present time of upheaval, uncertainty, overpopulation, scarcity, global conflict, environmental degradation and severe social injustice, the occult arts and sciences of astrology, alchemy and magic 
are rising to the surface of awareness, becoming more and more accepted in mainstream culture. Could we be on the leading edge of a hermetic revival to equal the flowering of hermeticism in the Renaissance? Will the name Hermes Trismegistus take on the same potency as Buddha or Jesus? In what ways does the hermetic tradition serve to help humanity, collectively and individually? Well, we are trying to find out in our talk with Marlene Seven Bremner now, and um, I hope you're going to enjoy that. And um, we will come back. Well, I will come back after about 36 minutes today uh, with uh, music again, with Egyptian music in a very particular way. Um, and for the moment, let's go to New Mexico and meet Marlene or Seven and enjoy our talk. Here comes the interview. I have a very special pleasure here to have a very special guest here on the Thoth Hermes podcast today. And it's my great, great pleasure to welcome Marlene Seven Bremner here on Thoth Hermes. Marlene, it's great to have you here and welcome. Um, we will talk a lot about hermeticism, about your art and about yourself today. Um, so we've got plenty of things to share. Great to have you. It's wonderful to be here, Rudolf. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, with great pleasure. You're speaking to us, I believe, from from New Mexico. Is that is that correct? I am. I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. in a little straw bale casita. Yeah. Yeah. But your name, Marlene, of course, especially that first name, which I think we won't use throughout the interview because people call you Seven, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've, so I've been um, going by seven and, for a long time. Right, and uh, we'll probably explore why seven. I think there must be a reason to that when we talk about the book, especially we'll, we'll find out easily. Um, so, um, but the background, your personal background is not North American by that first name, is it? Well, I was born in Germany, in Frankfurt, um, and I was given a German name. And I do have some German heritage, but my parents were not from Germany. Uh, my dad was Air Force, so he was stationed there, and that's where I was born. But. Ah, okay, I see. And then that's why also you moved at a rather young age back to the U.S. and have, I think, ever been living there. Um, but you have a very, very strong um, attraction, and maybe more than that, to Egypt, to ancient Egypt, of course, to Hermeticism, to Hellenistic times, and your art, and we're going to talk about that, is very much, I don't want to use the word borrowing, because inspired, I think it's the better word, by, by, by Hermeticism and by all that comes with it. So the first thing I would like to find out, and our listeners would like to find out probably as well, is how did it all start for you? Um, how did you find out about Hermeticism? How did it start interest you? Yeah, well, when and how did that start? Well, I, I became interested in spiritual um, teachings at a pretty young age when I was a teenager, but I didn't really come across Hermeticism until my early 20s. 
and I was studying polarity therapy, which is a form of hands-on energetic healing that works with the poles of the body, negative and positive, and with the chakra system. And it's it's very holistic. It works on diet. It works on um, deep acupressure type of um, stimulation to specific energy points and really just works to balance the entire energy field. And um, a lot of those a lot of polarity therapy is actually based in hermetic teachings. It's also partly based in Ayurveda and Western osteopathic techniques, but um, there's a definite portion of it that's, you know, traceable back to hermetic teachings. So that was probably my first real introduction to hermetics. And actually the Kabbalion is something that is gifted to the students when you finish the program at the school that I went to. So yeah, the Kabbalion, Kabbalion, right? so the, the, the famous, the famous Kabbalion of the late yeah. 19th century, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that might've been my first introduction, but I really, it didn't really hit home for me for a while. I sort of became interested in alchemy first and then alchemy led me down the path towards the hermetic tradition. Oh, yeah, of course. You said in when you started in spirituality at first, um, it was not hermeticism, which I think is quite normal at a very young age. Uh, you go maybe for other things. Uh, would you like to share what it was that initially brought you into the whole spiritual area? Uh, well, my mother was uh, spiritual in her own way. She was definitely um, witchy and she introduced me to my first tarot deck when I was 14. So that was one of the first things that happened for me. And then around 16, I started reading Carlos Castaneda and Paramahansa Yogananda and getting familiar with Buddhism and the Eastern traditions. And then I became obsessed with shamanism and um, the indigenous cultures of South America and, um, you know, got into different kinds of healing modalities, hands-on healing, laying on of stones. Um, I thought that that's what I wanted to do, you know, and so that was sort of the path I was on um, in my more esoteric side of my life. Whereas, you know, I was going to school for geography and I had this whole kind of like split in myself of uh, the spiritual and the practical. But um, yeah, and then I guess just more you know, pagan, pagan practices and mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Did you already live at the time in New Mexico or, or is that, uh, did that come later? No, I lived in Colorado for a long time, which is where most of that right. was happening and then moved up to the Northwest. Mm. And that's where my career really took off and developed. Right. I was asking because of the shamanistic approach and if it was maybe influenced by, by the country and by the people there. That's, that's why I asked. Yeah. And um, well, Castaneda was definitely also uh, standing there when I started in spirit, spirituality. So I, I, I know mm -hmm. that you're much younger than I, but, uh, but um, Castaneda sometimes is, is being smiled at later on. But uh, I, I owe him personally a lot, to be honest. I mean, oh, whatever yeah. you make out of it is the important thing. Yeah. 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 And um, right. But um, 
I think before we go any further, I would like to make you to make a distinction which you make very clearly early in that book. We are going to talk about that great book that is just coming out the days we are launching this podcast, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. It's your first book and it's about hermeticism. Well, that's exactly the question. And you make a very clear distinction in that book about hermetics and hermeticism. And I found that one of when I started reading the book, one of the first things that really hit me, I've hardly ever seen that distinction made so clearly. Maybe you could share that with our listeners here, who many of them are also rather well versed in the matter, how and why you distinguish uh, between those two terms. Well, I mean, I myself was very confused for a long time about those two terms. <clears throat> As are many other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I kind of for a while had the impression that they were interchangeable. And then I realized at a certain point that they really aren't. Um, and that, you know, certain scholars differentiate between the two terms. So hermeticism has come to refer to more of the tradition that's developed out of the traditional hermetic philosophy and teachings. Um, and hermeticism encompasses Kabbalah and uh, tarot and alchemy and astrology and magic and a number of different texts that are, you know, in reverence to Hermes written maybe um, pseudonymously by Hermes or um, refer to Hermes in some way. But Hermetic specifically refers to the philosophical and theological texts of the Hermetica, which date back to the first few centuries of the Common Era. So that's my understanding yeah, of the difference. I think that that distinction, I, A, I found it very clear and uh, it's very, a very important distinction to make. So um, what would you put a practitioner on, on hermeticism or, or on hermetics? When, when somebody says I'm practicing hermetics or hermeticism, what, how do you feel about that? Um. I'm not really sure. I, uh, I think there are a lot of people who practice different forms of hermeticism and, you know, mm. know very little about these original hermetic texts. And I think that's easy to do. You know, you kind of have to dig a little deeper to get into the, the hermetica. But um, as far as someone calling themselves a hermeticist or a, a hermetist, is that the question? <laughs> Yes, probably. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that same distinction would apply. Yeah. And that it would be important to yeah, differentiate. Because, but uh, you hear both terms, but as you as you just said, they are not used in a clearly distinctive way. I myself didn't don't use him often very clearly distinguishing. Um, yeah. And I think I'm not I'm not the only person to, to be like that. And, and I find, and that's something I wanted to say about that book, even though we're now going to talk about you again, but the book makes many things that are often very vague in literature and in talking about hermeticism and hermetics, etc., um, are made very clear in a very, in a very easy approach, but never simple. It's, it's, it's really, I really like that about that, about that book, but let's get to the book a little bit later. Let's go back to, Marlene to seven, because um, how did it then 
carry on from there when you had, you had your first contacts? How did it deepen in you? And when did the art come to you? Because art plays an important role in your life, in your work and in your approach to hermetics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, this was also in my mid twenties. I was still studying polarity therapy. Um, I was in a couple of different programs for a period of about five years And I had a really intense experience that sort of turned my life upside down. It was, uh, you know, sort of a near death experience, um, catalyzed by DMT. And I, mm. after that, basically just nothing made sense for me. Nothing made sense. None of my spiritual practices helped me. I felt completely lost and my entire nervous system seemed to have like been turned upside down as well. And, um, mm. I would have panic attacks and anxiety and severe depression and insomnia. And this was like overnight. So I had to really like figure out how to help myself because nothing seemed to be working. Mm. And this was also the time that I was beginning to read about alchemy, um, through the lens of Carl Jung. Um, and mm. at the same time, I was starting to teach myself oil painting so these things all converged and I realized that I could take these difficult things that I was experiencing and project them outwards into a physical form on the canvas and externalize it in a way that allowed me to see it and communicate with it and learn from it. And ultimately that's what I believe healed me was um, doing that over time and working in a sort of you know, surreal way where I was allowing the unconscious to express itself. And a lot of the work from that period, I haven't shown anyone because it was just too personal, but it was very healing sure. for me. And at the same time, I was just really deep in my studies of alchemy and deepening my understanding of all these alchemical processes and the stages of the great work and um, really experimenting with that and playing with that in my creative process. And along the way, developing a, a keen interest in where all of this comes from and the history of it. So, uh, You say, okay, I, I taught myself oil painting or I started oil painting. Okay, well, everybody can, can try to do that, but you must have a certain talent and a certain... <laughs> will and 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 power to 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 do that otherwise i mean you it's 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 hard in the beginning right i mean mm -hmm. i'm an artist myself but in a completely different field i mean performing arts but i think it's the same for all of us it's not just you just don't just take painting and start doing it you have to really dig into it. What, what gave you at that very moment because you you were in a difficult state of mind, a difficult state, uh, what gave you the, the energy, the power to say, okay, I have to teach myself that. Well, I had sort of started trying to improve my artistic skills a little bit before all of this happened. So I was already in a, mm -hmm. in a creative process with that, but the oil painting really kind okay. of coincided with the alchemy. Um, And I think I was just, I was playing around with a lot of different mediums and not really satisfied with the results. And so I decided to try oils again. And I had created a lot of art as a kid. I was very artistic as a child and a lot of artistic influences um, from my family on my mom's side. My mom was a fantastic artist mm. and my uncle was a very well-known painter in Seattle. And um, their art was all around mm. me growing up. 
but I never had any instruction from them. I never had any formal art training. And I think as a teenager, I just um, had this idea in my head that I wasn't really that good. And so I shouldn't spend that much time on it. And that's why I started getting into other things, the healing arts. And uh, mm. yeah, so mm. this was a time in my life when I was reversing that belief about myself that maybe I could actually be a good artist and maybe I could do something with this. Because, you know, I, I knew I had a certain mm. level of talent, but um, it needed to be developed. So I just became very determined to right. to do that. And I had recently moved to Olympia and there's a lot of artists in that in that town. So there was a, yeah, good motivation and support all around me and inspiration. Right. Right. But the, the, the oil as a, as a, as a painting and alchemy was not directly related that it was just a coincidence, right? It was. Yeah. Choosing yeah. that, choosing the oil painting. I mean, yeah, it's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there was something about it <laughs> right. that, um, Sorry. <laughs> I was just no, going to say ahead. there was go something ahead. about the oils that they dry so slowly that they allow you to really work with them over a longer period of time. And I think that mm -hmm. really contributed mm -hmm. to a sort of alchemical process where I could shift things and change things as I was shifting and changing. And it didn't feel so rigid and right. locked in and permanent. It was a, you know, a process of evolution and change transmutation. Um. That's exactly what I had thought. That's why that's why I asked, because yeah. oil on canvas, of course, can be altered later on in a, in a process. And that, that that's that reminded me of alchemy, of alchemical processes. Absolutely. Um, we go back to the art in the moment. So you start combining alchemy and then discover hermetics. Um, but you went much deeper into that when you read that when we read that book you, we can see that you have really dealt with the hermetic subject in a very deep way also a very personal way what what happened what made you do that what what happened with you then mm. well as i was creating these paintings over time they communicated a lot to me the symbols that would come to me through dreams, um, through intuitions, through nature. And I just had a very intense curiosity and desire to understand and to understand the language of these symbols and what they were trying to communicate. And so that just, you know, led into a lot of deep study time. Um, I lived a very hermetic lifestyle, a lot of solitude and, um, trying to just understand and go as deep as I could with it. So I, I was going to ask what, what exactly is your hermetic lifestyle? Can you, can you, can you expand a bit on that? What you would describe as a hermetic lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, a lifestyle that is, um, characterized by a certain level of devotion to, to study and to contemplation. Uh, with lots of space mm -hmm. and solitude and time for magic and thinking about eternal, mm -hmm. eternal things and death. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
but it's a solitary path, isn't it? I think it is. And for me, I really prefer that. I prefer a lot of time alone and away from the world. And that allows me to do what I do mm. with the painting and the writing and the study and with my magical practice. But um, it's, you know, not always practical and the world comes knocking on my door and I have to answer. So there's a balance, you know, of, of uh, maintaining that hermetic lifestyle and you know, bringing the, what I experience out into the world and then also being recharged and uh, informed by other people and nurtured by other people. And that's also very important. And you have to give interviews on podcasts and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. And um, let's go a bit into the book now, um, in the first part of the book, because in the first part, I understand before we come to the, to the, the, the third part, which is the, the seven, the, the seven, um, spheres, the journeys for the seven spheres, right? You, you talk about the three branches of hermeticism. And I found also that explanation and that categorization, I'd always almost say fascinating because it's. Yes, I have seen that before, but it was never done that clear. Maybe you could also help our listeners who don't know that book yet. Um, what do you mean by those three branches of hermeticism? Yeah, the three branches of hermeticism, as I understand them, are alchemy, magic, and astrology. And when you look at the actual hermetic text, the Hermetica, um, the philosophical and theological texts, the Corpus Hermeticum, um, and the excerpts of Stobius and uh, the Coptic fragments from the Nag Hammadi Codex. You don't see a lot of these other aspects, magic, alchemy, and astrology in those. There's little bits here and there, mm -hmm. and um, certainly more astrology in those and a little bit of magic and less alchemy. Uh, so generally, scholars tend to refer to these things as technical hermetica, uh, so there's a lot of different texts outside of the traditional Hermetica that talk about astrology and magic and alchemy and quite a tradition around all of those that have their own histories and roots. And um, maybe you could also help with the classification because you speak about, help me now with the, the, uh, the, the moon, Moon, stars, and sun, right? You take as the three mm -hmm. symbols for those three branches. Maybe mm -hmm. you can go ahead on that. Yeah, so magic, the operation of the moon. And we think about things that are unseen and hidden causes and reflected light and mm -hmm. the associations between the moon and magic and mythology and Uh, the deity Thoth from ancient Egypt being a god of the moon and a god of magic. So there's a lot of associations there, operation of the moon. Mm -hmm. And alchemy would be the operation of the sun. And the ultimate goal of the alchemical work is the, you know, to reach that state of perfection, which is symbolized by gold, the metal gold, which is the noblest of all the metals. And to transmute these lower base right. metals like lead and tin and copper and iron into their highest expression in the form of gold. And so mm -hmm. alchemy then is the operation of the sun, which is corresponding to the metal gold and that level of perfection and right. divinity and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
and astrology. And we have, of course, the stars. Yeah, operation mm. of the stars, astrology, the zodiac, and the the constellations, and um, all the turnings of the spheres, and yeah, yeah, yeah. How much does in your personal life and in your personal approach to hermeticism, um, nature and your nature surroundings? Um, the, the, the places you live in, so to speak, uh, uh, how much do they play a role? Uh, do they influence you? Are you looking for certain places because, you know, you can do your, your great work and your artwork, uh, which often combine uh, easy, more easily there? Or does nature search you or how does that work in that relationship? Mm. I love that question. I, uh, I feel like I've had a really intimate connection with nature, especially through the elements from a young age. And part of the reason why I moved to the Northwest was I was living in Colorado and just felt like it was too fiery and too dry, too much air and fire, a very masculine energy. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't become the person that I needed to be. I needed to be somewhere with trees and water and lots of earth and mountains. And, um, more water than anything. So I ended up moving to the Northwest and it's a very lunar dark place. It's, it'll draw things out of you. It'll, it'll draw the shadows out of you if, uh, mm. if you're not looking for it, you know, and, um, it changed me a lot. It definitely helped to balance me out and bring out more of my feminine side and helped me to access parts of myself that had been hidden and that needed to come out in order for me to heal and to grow and to become who I needed to be. So yeah, I definitely was influenced by the elemental composition of place from a young age. And that's again, why I moved to the desert again to balance out. So I'd been in the Northwest for 12 years and finally got my fill of all the water and felt uh, saturated with that. So I needed to come somewhere that was dry with a lot of space with more of a soulful quality and more, expanded perspective and ability to see out into the distance. And mm-hmm. it took me a while to make that move. I was definitely um, a little bit scared to go back to the desert. I felt like maybe I couldn't handle it anymore, but here I am. And I've, I've been here for three years now and it's been, it's been wonderful. I love it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I do a lot of um, walks in nature and that's also a huge influence on my work and, you know, I'll reflect on things as I'm walking. There's, I call it a walking contemplation because I'll reflect on things that I'm working on in writing and in painting. And when I'm in the right receptive space, then symbols will come to me in the form of insects or birds or certain patterns in nature mm-hmm. in the clouds. And then I'll just, I'll get messages and they help me to continue on in the work. So that's also a big part of my hermetic path. If I understand you well, the way you practice uh, hermeticism is that you start, and that's how I understand it also in general, that's through the work that you do, through the practices that you do, you start perceiving the world around you in a different way, in a more aware way, maybe if you, if you want to put it in an easy word, would you, would you 
mm. agree to that or do you, will you live it differently? Oh no, I definitely agree with that. I, I feel mm. like that's the essence of the hermetic teachings is that mm. everything is part of one field of energy emanating from the source, from God. And it's not separate from us. It's all within this field of mind, the mind of God. And so we, we can communicate with it. It communicates with us. And the more that we practice this, the more receptive we can become to these spiritual messages that are being transmitted through, through the planets, through nature all around which is again people. feeding back into into the thing in the first place right and and accelerating or intensi intensifying that 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 feeling again right oh yeah oh yeah yeah and i mm -hmm. i generally that's my state of consciousness most of the time is this feeling of deep interconnectivity and an understanding that nothing is really outside of myself And sometimes, it, you know, it's not as strong and I go back into my sort of egoic place, but um, it's pretty easy for me to sure. maintain that in most situations. And I think that's something that comes with time mm -hmm. and practice. And, but that's why yeah. I've, I've just developed such a love for this material, because I think that's really where it brings us is to an understanding of this deep interconnectivity with all things. Absolutely. Um, Now, what made you in, in your personal development um, start to have the idea to write this book? And I may say as much because people can even find out on Amazon already, um, there will be a, a, a sequel to that book. There is already mm -hmm. uh, uh, another book. I think it'll be out in May or something like that from what I, from what I get from in the traditions. Um, What made you start doing that? Why did you suddenly want to express yourself not only on canvas only? I don't mean that in a reductive way, but not on canvas alone, um, but uh, in writing. What what brought you there? Mm. It's well, quite a step, just, you know. It is, yeah. Um, the second book was actually originally just part of one book. It was going to be one book altogether. And, um, mm -hmm. it was when I got the publishing deal with inner traditions that they asked me if I could make it into two books. And so that became, um, quite the project to divide them up. And then they became very different books altogether. So I'm very glad that they had me do that. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that I started off with the idea to write a book. It was more that I just needed to write things out in order to understand things better for myself. So I was learning so much through the symbols and the paintings, you know, because symbols would come to me from seemingly uh, not outside, but, you know, just in novel ways that were new to me, or they felt outside of myself, mm. like through dreams or through visions or through nature. And I wouldn't necessarily understand what they meant. So I would do a lot of research and study to try and understand them and communication with the symbols. And, um, through that process, I just ended up writing a ton of material and a lot of it was published on my Patreon blog at a certain point. Um, so people can find that there if they want to dig into the Patreon archives, a lot of the, uh, mm -hmm. the core material mm -hmm. was, was put on there. And at a certain point, it just, it sort of started to feel like a book. 
And I got the message through spirit that it should be a book that it needed to be. And so I started to sort of think of it that way and organize it as, um, as I went along and continued to add more material and learn more and study more. And when I moved to New Mexico, I had it in my mind that I was moving there to finish my book and that I needed the space and the solitude to finish it. And I couldn't do it in Olympia because my life had just become too busy with art shows and, you know, writing poetry at the market. Too many artists around there. <laughs> yeah, too many artists, wonderful people that I wanted to talk to all the time and I had to get away. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I found a little hermit hideaway in the desert and uh, within six months, I think, or within the first year, I had the publishing deal with Inner Traditions and just set to work writing full time and hardly painted during that time because I just had so much work to do to get the books together into a, mm -hmm. a final order. But yeah. And um, in what way for you writing, I'm coming to something, you, you feel me come to something, but um, um, in what way writing is a different way of mm. artistic, magical, hermetic, whatever expression than painting? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a little bit like the difference between soul and spirit. You know, I think of soul as more consciousness mm -hmm. feeling uh, and spirit as more mind and rational, like the logos. Um, so oil painting is mm -hmm. like the soul of my creative process. It's the oil, it's the, the flowing, the, the feminine, the like um, soft. And I can go into a very void space in myself when I'm painting. I don't have to think so much, <laughs> but with the writing, it's uh, okay. very, yeah. very linear, very, you know, I have to put my yeah. thoughts in logical order. And so I think it's helpful for me because I spend so much time in these liminal spaces where things are ideas and symbols are floating around in this sort of, um, soupy space. And in order for me to get a grasp on anything, I need to put it in writing. I need to see it um, written out in a logical fashion. I, I, if, if possible for you, I would like you to explain to our listeners a bit more about, because that, that's, as I said, initially, that's what fascinates me about that book. Um, visibly, you needed to put order in many things that you heard, experienced and read yourself, right, about hermetics. And that's the case many people, I believe, who want to practice this art are in. There's so much material around, especially now with the internet. You find so many different things and you can prove one thing and the contrary at the same time. Yeah. And at some point, Everybody who takes it seriously needs to sit down and kind of make your own your own schedule for it. Almost, <laughs> I would say to, to 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 define things for yourself, right? Yeah. And if I understood you well now, just right now, that's what made you decide to start. Maybe not even writing a book, but to start writing altogether to to put that in order for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, a, so two questions out of that. What do you think is the reason that this material is so 
diluted, I'd almost say, and so 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 confusing often. And how did you make it boil it down? I'd almost say to become so clear and in a way almost easy to understand. What did you do about it? Well, I think, I mean, hermetic, the word itself <laughs> refers to something that's occult and abstruse and difficult to understand or somewhat hidden. Sure. So it's just the nature of the material itself. But I think there are certain things that um, they're just so difficult to put into words. And the only way to talk about them is to talk mm -hmm. around them. Yet, mm -hmm. I think there are ways to conceptualize things and... I think that was my desire was to really be able to put things into terms that I could wrap my mind around and to sort of put them into a, a system that, um, that I could follow through my work, you know? And you wanted to share that with other people at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I felt called to share it with people. And, you know, if I talked about it, people seemed very interested and would ask a lot of questions. And I got the sense that a lot of a lot more people than you would think are actually very interested in in hermeticism and in hermetics. And and. Uh, it felt absolutely like it felt like something I needed to do. Let's take a musical break now and we're going to listen to something very special. Um, I don't know if you know the name of Peter Pringle. Our Canadian friends maybe do know him. He is a Canadian musician and uh, was quite a well-known television personality there in the 70s and 80s mostly, so that's not quite recent. But he has a speciality on performing on ancient instruments, really ancient instruments. I mean, I'm talking about really ancient instruments, which he builds himself upon plants that have been found by archaeologists, etc. So he has done music um, from in Sumerian in with an Anglo-Saxon lyre, uh, the hurdy-gurdy that he built himself. He sings psalms with the harp in Hebrew and the epic of Gilgamesh in the original Sumerian language. And um, what we hear now is an ancient Egyptian love song. And let me read you the text that he wrote for, for us, uh, for the listeners about that. At least an excerpt from that. The words for this song are from an ancient Egyptian papyrus scroll written in a formalized version of the language of the New Kingdom. So that was roughly 1500 BC. It was the area of some of Egypt's most famous pharaohs like Tutankhamun, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, etc. And the song is written in several parts as a dialogue between a young man and the girl he loves. And he sings that song, Peter Pringle sings that song in the original language. And he uses an instrument, a reproduction of a 22-string Egyptian New Kingdom arched harp called the Jejet. He made it himself entirely of cedar and animal skin without nails or screws or anything. And he, he would try to reproduce the sound and the melody of the time. Of course, it's just a imagination. We don't have written music from the time, but we have the text. And I think Peter Bringle does a really extraordinary job and gives us 
uh, with his beautiful voice and heartfelt presentation, uh, a magnificent piece of music. So um, ancient Egyptian love song performed by Peter Pringle. That will be what you hear now. After that, we return to continue our exciting conversation with Marlene. And after that, we come back and some other Nubian music recorded in the streets of Egypt. Nubian um, traditional music um, filmed on the banks of Lake Nasser, in fact. So once again, Peter Pringle's ancient Egyptian love song and his interpretation with a self-built instrument built after plans of the time. After that, we return to talk about hermetic philosophy and the journey through the seven spheres with Marlene Seven-Bremner. And to finish then afterwards, it will be Nubian music filmed on the banks of the Lake Nasser. After which, of course, I will come back to tell you what will be episode seven next week. Enjoy. Ma'ashinawis, 
and I would invite everyone to do so because of course we have been talking about painting and we're going to talk about arts a little more further down this interview um, and you would of course want to see also that website with the gallery with the with the images painted by Marlene uh, or or um, but then you will also find out as I did that for about four years now, I believe, you have started writing poems. Mm, yes. Now, um, when you just said expression and um, painting is the expression of the soul and your book writing is expression of the mind, um, where would you put poem writing? <laughs> Good question. 
somewhere in between, I, I guess it's, uh, Mm-hmm. So actually what I was doing and I was introduced this introduced to this by a dear friend of mine named William Curious. Um, it's spontaneous poetry. So you take a typewriter to a farmer's market or to a lively event with lots of people and you write poems on the spot. People give you a topic and you, you channel something for them basically in the moment. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I mm-hmm. did this for a period of about four years consistently almost every weekend I was at several different markets and would just sit there and write for five or six hours at a time. And I used to do a lot of events and uh, it was great. And I think it's sort of a, the soul aspect comes in with the connection between people, you know, and the sort of energy that you exchange when someone comes up to you and they share with you what they would like a poem about. It, It can be a very vulnerable space. And there's a certain level of exchange with most people that happens if they're open and um, information that comes through that soulful exchange. And then the spirit aspect is sort of, I see it as like, there's all these words and ideas and concepts and symbols just floating around and the typewriter is there and it's ready to, to transmit those. But I, as the channel need to like get myself out of the way and allow that to just happen through the body. So in a way, it's it's a combination of soul, spirit, and body. Uh, right. So in that particular way of, of poetry, of course, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. But but isn't that terribly exhausting to sit there for five or six hours and to do just that? It certainly can be. I felt very energized mm. during the process, and I would get tired by the end of it. And then afterwards, I would yeah. be so exhausted from all the social interaction and the energy exchanges and everything that I would have to go directly to my studio and just lay on the floor and turn off the lights and not talk to anybody for the rest of the day, basically, because I just couldn't handle anymore. So it was energetically very difficult for me to maintain that. And that was actually part of the reason why I left the Northwest. Um, Those, yeah, that lifestyle just was not working for me anymore, even though I love it dearly. And I, I do still write poems for people from from my home so people can request a poem online and i can do that for them yeah i saw that yeah yeah Yeah. but does your hermetic um, work your hermetic practice um has that opened that space for you to be able to channel those poems to to be a channel for those poems let's put it that way or is that is that just your personality that allows it or has the hermetic work made it possible I think it has made it possible because before I sort of went through that difficult period that I explained and alchemy and hermeticism was sort of my path out of that along with painting, I was very timid and to do something like sitting in a busy market and talking to people and expressing myself creatively in the moment like that, it's it's very performative. And I can't imagine myself having done that before I went through that sort of transformation. So I feel like the hermetic teachings really did help me open up to that. Um, I don't think it's Mm -hmm. necessarily, uh, you know, maybe I could have come to that some other way, but I think it did help me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the the things I was learning and studying about hermeticism and alchemy were coming through in the poem. So it was another level of me integrating what I was learning and sharing it in the moment with people. 
Of course, um, hermeticism is often very much related to ancient Egypt, to especially the Ptolemaic times, to Hellenistic times of Egypt. Um, in what relation do you stand with ancient Egypt? So ma many of us, I may say, because I feel a bit like that myself, and I know many people out there do, when we talk about ancient knowledge in general, and mostly, of course, about Hermeticism in that respect, um, ancient Egypt plays a highly important role, often very mystical or very unclear or very, very nebulous, but it's there. Um, what is your personal relationship as a Hermeticist to ancient Egypt? I feel a very deep connection with ancient Egypt and with the mythology and cosmogony of the Egyptians. And that was really fascinating to me to learn about the connections between um, Hermeticism and Hermetism and ancient Egypt and how it has its roots there and goes back to the ancient worship of the deity Thoth. And so Thoth in particular, who's also known as Tehuti and who became synchronized with the Greek Hermes and became the Hermes Trismegistus or Hermes Thrice Greatest, has been a very, very important figure for me, spiritual figure and teacher and guide on my path, as I think he is for, for many hermetists and hermeticists. And yeah, sure. I, mm -hmm. I feel a very personal connection, especially to Thoth, the ibis-headed deity of the Egyptians. And there's even a okay. painting that you can see on my website that came through very, in a very powerful way of Thoth in, in a sort of Absolutely. state of transfiguration. And that was something that I felt happening within me as the hermetic teachings were really coming through so strongly. And I was doing a lot of ritual work, magical work of invocation around Thoth and calling that into my life in a big way. And so I feel a very deep connection with certain Egyptian figures, but I recently just this last month had the great privilege and, um, blessing to go to Egypt myself and to walk in all of these ancient temple sites and to see the, the reliefs of Thoth and so many other deities and Kings upon the walls of these beautiful, amazing temples and to walk inside the pyramids and set foot in this land that has meant so much to me through my whole life. And quite, it's quite really amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So you went there as an individual tourist, I guess. Well, it was part of a uh, hermetic alchemic mystery field school, actually. So, ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was so a tour, but it was that, that, that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Tour, but with a very spiritual focus and with lots of initiation going on and uh, deep work. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was a beautiful great, experience. I have talking about that. I have here and talking about expression of art because I want to come then to the, to the, what you call the journey of through, through the seven spheres and also maybe give us an explanation of your name seven, because I guess yeah. it's hidden in there. Um, <laughs> but, um, I have here on my screen that, um, painting of you, which is called Harmonia Elementorum. 
Right? Mm -hmm. I, I guess I, you know which one I mean with where you have the elements, you have um, the rosy cross, so to speak, in the middle. You have the pentagram, the hexagram. You have a high combination of 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 symbolism put together, and um, you also have Ouroboros, of course, around around the rose, which I find also particularly interesting. Um, can you? I would invite people to go on your website and look at that image while while we speak about it. Um, can you maybe explain a bit the process of that image? How this, mm. how you see the symbolism in that combination? What inspired you to that image? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's called Harmonia Elementorum. I just pulled it up myself so I can look at it while I talk about it. Sure. I one of the things that I started out with, and this is often the case when I'm doing a more planned painting, is to lay out a foundation of sacred geometry. And often I'll encode this within the painting. It won't be something that's obvious, like, you know, just a flower of life design or something. It's like encoded into yeah. the design of the painting. And so this one, I was working with the Vesica Piscus, which is the shape that's produced when two circles overlap. And the circumference of one circle touches the uh, the center point of the next circle. And so you get this sort of um, elongated oval shape. And it's used in a lot of architecture and windows, and it's a very harmonious shape. And so that gave me the idea to kind of have this window looking out and this sort of stained glass look to the zodiacal signs as they go around this Vesica Piscus. And it's also the symbol is called mm -hmm. the bladder of the fish. And it's sort of an opening or like a gateway to um, to a higher world, to the place of creation, basically, is how I see it. It's the womb, you know, and the window at the same time. Mm -hmm. And within that, you have the cross and then the triangle that's formed above and below the cross. And so you can see that in the geometry of the painting. And... Right. Yeah, I think at the time I was very interested in the symbol of the rosy cross as sort of a union of spirit and matter and the connection, the, the, the focal point of the above and below coming together and the spirit and the world of humanity. And so you can see at the top and the bottom of the cross, there's uh, the hexagram that refers to the spiritual realm, the macrocosm above Mm. And the pentagram or the the world of man, the microcosm on the, the lower side. Yeah. And yeah, so then the Ouroboros, of course, is that symbol of eternity and cycles constantly um, renewing themselves, shedding the skin and devouring themselves and turning round and round. And... So it's a fascinating picture. I mean, it's the combination of all those symbols, which I find very strong in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I hope now everybody's sitting in front of their computers and, and please, <laughs> those who drive while listening to those podcasts, do not now take out your phone and look <laughs> at the screen while you drive. Um, but um, do it at home. And, and um, um, it's a very meditative picture, isn't it? It is. It is. And it, I have two 
main ways that I work when I'm painting. And this is an example of the way that I paint when I'm trying to integrate information and convey it in a way mm -hmm. that other people can benefit from in a sort of meditative fashion. So usually those are very harmonious and um, somewhat symmetrical and balanced. And mm -hmm. they're because of that, they need to be planned out a little bit more. So the symbols and ideas come to me in a very intuitive way, but then I take some time to put them together into a composition that will be very harmonious and um, easy to, to gaze at. Mm -hmm. And the other way that I paint is yeah. more surreal. And that's where I just allow the unconscious to express itself, to lay out the foundation of the painting. And so I'm not thinking about it and things come out in a very surprising way. And then I take time to develop those initial forms. That's, for example, the transfiguration of thoughts, right? Which would be a painting exactly. of, that, yeah. of that way, right? Exactly, right. yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So go to the website and have a look, because that way you will know what we are talking about here. But then it's really, really wonderful pictures and, and um, paintings, and you really should go and see them. Um, Let's move to the journey of the seven spheres, because that's an important part of that first book of yours. And um, yeah, maybe you it's about the seven pla classical planets, right? Mm -hmm. um, but maybe you explain to us a little bit in your words, um, what is the journey of the seven spheres? And in what way is it linked to creative alchemy? Mm -hmm. Well, the seven spheres, yes, the seven traditional planets. So it's the five inner planets and the two luminaries, the sun and the moon. And so these are also, they correspond to energies within us. And we can relate them to the seven chakras within our energy body, um, to these seven archetypes. And they all, each one has a large number of correspondences in mythology, in the plant world, in the mineral world. And through understanding these correspondences, through developing a personal relationship with each of these spheres or energies or archetypes, we can come to know ourselves better and also come to know God and the nature of God. And so the hermetic texts talk about ascending through these seven spheres as we return to our divinity. And with each sphere, we sort of shed different layers of ourselves that we've accumulated through our incarnation and we rise up through the spheres. And so it's similar to the way that um, like Tibetan internal alchemy talks about like the rising of energy through the energy body or like the rising of the Kundalini through the seven chakras to the crown. And that's also like an ascent of our primal energy back to the source. So I look at, these seven planets, these seven energies through, um, through mythology, through esoteric anatomy, through magic and ritual, uh, through all these different lenses, including a little bit of Kabbalah mixed in there. And uh, as a way to help people get a very, you know, full spectrum understanding of each sphere. And to start making their own connections and to, to get 
to know these energies on a personal level, because I think that's where the real transformation happens when we start to embody these energies and they transform through us. And so we become part of these myths because I see myths as these living stories. They're not just something that happened once upon a time. They're like gifts to humanity for us to understand the nature of reality, the nature of our situation here and how to better navigate it and how to ultimately realize gnosis within ourselves and ultimate self-knowledge. So yeah, each chapter is a very in-depth look and it's a lot of information and it's not meant to be just digested in a simple like read through, you know, it's meant to be meditated upon and contemplated and integrated over time and returned to, you know, as a reference. Yeah, and it's done in the order of the classical hermetic order of those seven planets. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you call them spheres in that case? Mm, well, that's a reference to the Hermetic texts that refer to them as spheres. Yeah, but because yeah. it moves on to eight and nine, actually, when, when we talk about spheres. It does, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you could certainly relate that yep. to uh, spheres outside of the energy body. You know, the aura has different layers, and so you could think right. about it that way. And you could think about mm -hmm. it. Uh, one way that I've been visualizing it lately is... Do you know the seed of life symbol? It's uh, the center yeah. of the flower of life. So it's the seven inner circles mm -hmm. and it's contained within one outer circle. And so you've got seven spheres mm -hmm. within and then this outer circle, which is the eighth. And the eighth, eighth contains yeah. all of the seventh. And the way I see it is when you get those seven energies, whether you conceptualize them as planets or as chakras, when you get those energies aligned and focused then you can actually transcend them. They become unified and you can reach this level of the eighth sphere, which is called the Ogdoad. And it's referred to as yes. the creative sphere or the formative sphere. And that's the place where we're really in a state of um, reaching that divine mind and getting our personal egoic self out of the way and allowing spirit to move through us in a very creative flow. And I think, Honestly, I think that's what people refer to as flow states. I think they're in that eighth sphere. They're not working against mm -hmm. themselves. They're not polarized. They're completely in the moment and focused and present. And this happens in a creative sense. It happens to athletes. Uh, it's a sort of almost trance state, but it's, it's divine. And it's, uh, it's a very lovely place to be. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can a little bit get drugged by it almost mm, when, when, you, when you stage for too long in it. Right. Indeed. right. But, um, that, I mean, in my, in my understanding, uh, maybe that's a bit personal, but the octuad, the eighth sphere is very much linked to ancient Egyptian way of thinking let's put it that way um would you would you also share that opinion would you see it like oh. that oh yeah yeah i think it very much relates to the ogdoad of the hermopolitan cosmogony so that's exactly. a group of eight deities um mm -hmm. that were often overseen by or seen as being headed by the deity thoth so you've got these eight and then Thoth being related to yeah. Mercury, that the number associated with Mercury in a magical sense is also the number eight. And the number eight, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and the polarity of four couples that you have in the octuad in the classical exactly. Egyptian octuad uh, yeah, uh, tells a lot about exactly male female pairs tells a lot about what uh, what that state that flow state as you as you name it oh yeah uh, means in a way yeah yeah because you've got these a balance four male between those powers exactly four male female pairs mm -hmm. so that also corresponds to the elements which can be seen as each having their own male female balance in each of the elements or if you want to say positive negative or um, just the polarities yeah. in general expressed through those four yeah. elements yeah exactly and then you have the polarity within those four but also among those eight there is a another another level of polarity which balances them on a different level than just just on the positive negative male female level and i think yeah um is the journey through the seven spheres as you laid out here is it a kind of manual i don't want to call it a grimoire my god but is it a kind of manual for people who are interested in hermetic philosophy uh, uh in in a personal alchemy to to go that path from the beginning from saturn to uh, to the, the the moon is is that the way you you laid out or what's the aim of those chapters about the seven spheres mm. Well, I think the part two of the book that really gets into the theory of alchemical theory and philosophy and tying that in with hermetics, I think that's really more of the manual part of the book. Uh, the first part is really the right. history and sort of the, the roots of everything. And then the second part is that manual part that um, sort of presents it as a, a system. And then the third part is really more for contemplation. And I Someone could work with it that way, the sat working with the spheres Saturn through the moon, the way I have it laid out. And that certainly would be a fine way to work with it. However, I think the second book is going to be more of, of that process of how to work with these seven spheres, but specifically through the four stages of the great work, the alchemical great work. So that one is more of a, yeah. I don't want to say practical because I... I don't really do practical necessarily, but it is a, a way of working with the great work and in a creative sense and integrating it with the creative process. So yeah. the second so, book so will who, get a little deeper. Who, and the second book will be called The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. Yes. And this subtitled Imagination, Creativity and the Great Work, right? Yes, yes. Um, and it's being planned to to appear in July 23. So, so let's be on the lookout for that. Yes. But um, who do you aim those two books uh, for with? I mean, what's your target? What, who, everybody of course should buy it, but who do you specifically think of when you, when you, when you write that book? Um, who do you want to talk to with it? Hmm. I think I, was really aiming to reach a wide audience. So people that are completely new to the material that maybe have very little familiarity with any of it that are just being introduced to hermeticism and who maybe haven't yet read the hermetica, but need some sort of like gateway into it, you know, or something to lead them into it. Mm -hmm. 
And I also wanted to apply to people that are familiar with the material and for it to appeal to them and to be written in a sort of scholarly way. So uh, people that are looking for that are satisfied because I'm looking for that when I read books often. Uh, it's, it's easier for me to connect with material that's written in a way that's well-researched and referenced. And I, I like to be able to see where things mm -hmm. come from and where ideas were, were taken from and stuff. So that was definitely part of my intention in writing these. And um, that's, yeah, that's really my intention and my hope is that it reaches a wide audience of people that are mm -hmm. both more intimate with the material and brand new to it. Yeah, I, I, I would like to, to, to stress that, that it's not just a beginner's book at all. To be, uh, what, again, what I find really fascinating is that it can aim at the well, beginner. You have to have a certain interest in spirituality and, uh, yes. yeah. and have heard the term hermetics maybe for some, for once or twice, but uh, yeah. otherwise <laughs> you wouldn't start going into that. But, but, um, uh, it is certainly, it is a book for people who, as you just said, want to get, to get the first idea and it be inspired what to read on also. Um, but it certainly is also a book for people who have experience and as you did it for yourself, wanted to put some order in your, in your own thought. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, because and it, another, it, it puts to order. Yeah. Another thing that I found lacking in a lot of books that I've read is, uh, I really wanted full chapters on each of the planets. You know, I kept looking for that and mm -hmm. didn't really find that in anything that I was okay. reading. So that was a big part of mm -hmm. my inspiration. And a lot of where this began was just writing about the planets. And a lot of it came after that. Right. Which of course now finally, finally after more than an hour brings me to that question. Why do you call yourself seven? I guess uh, it is related, right? It is. And it isn't. I, um, for a long time, I thought that seven would be a beautiful name. It just has a very nice ring to it. Okay. And at a certain point, I think when I was a teenager, I became very interested in the Seven Sisters constellation, the Pleiades, and that became a very important part of my my spiritual practice, actually, was connecting with the Pleiades. And I also, um, there were just, I realized there were a lot of spiritual traditions that the number seven was very important for, including yeah. uh, Lakota, Seven Laws of the Lakota, and I have some Lakota heritage, so I, I learned about that, and um, then I learned about the seven hermetic principles of the Kabbalion. And so all these things were kind of coming together. And I also, at a certain point, I don't know when realized that my, my given name, Marlena Suzanne Bremner, uh, each name has seven letters. So seven, seven, seven. And this was completely unintentional on the part of my parents. They did not plan that. So I felt connected yeah. with the number for a number of reasons. And I went through a big change in my life during my Saturn return. Actually, I was about 29 or 30 and ended a long relationship. My cat died. I was moving to a new town and I figured, you know, this is a good time to, um, to change my name and to try out a different vibration because I felt like the name that I was being called, which is my given name, Marlena, 
just wasn't giving me what I needed. It felt too soft and too passive and feminine. And I felt like I needed more uh, activation and neutrality and a little more on the masculine side. So I decided to take on the name seven when I moved to a new town and introduced myself as that. And people believed me and I was surprised <laughs> and it worked. So um, yeah, right. it actually very, it was very effective in, in what I had intended. And it really helped me to feel a different part of myself. And I love my given name, Marlena. And I don't mind when people call me that. And, but generally people call me seven now. So I'm just used to that. Yeah. So maybe it's my Germanic background that makes me immediately call you Marlene, but, but the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the balance item, um, the balance question, you, you mentioned that several times now, and now, just now, also before we said you moved from the desert up to the Northwest and back to the desert again, not from the desert from Colorado to the Northwest and to the desert back again. Um, the question of balance in hermeticism, not just for you, I think it's one of the key questions, isn't it? How do you achieve balance? beyond changing names and moving if you can't do that how would you advise a person who is looking for ba balance but maybe in day-to-day -day life of the 21st century does not have the same possibility um, how would you try to help such a person i think there are infinite ways to balance energy and we can do them in little ways throughout the day it doesn't have to be a huge shift. You know, you don't have to move towns and change names. I tend to be a little dramatic sometimes, uh, but I think we could, well, you know, we are, we are artists. We have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think working with correspondence is really the way to get creative with it. You know, so you could, you know, change the way that you dress. You could change the way that you decorate your space. You could change the items on your altar. You could, Uh, turn to certain deities that you think will help you invoke certain qualities to help balance out things that maybe need adjusting within yourself. Uh, working with planets, you know, if if you feel an excess of of one energy, you could find another to help balance that out. You know, if if you're too watery and you have no boundaries and you're talking too much and spilling all over the place and crying and maybe you need a little more earth and stability and structure in your life and you could focus on building up your routines and so you could work with yeah. the elements and that's i think you the basic yeah yeah you, know, you mentioned correspondences and i think that's that's very very important and um probably getting aware in the first place of those correspondences that which can be helped with very easy things like writing down for a couple of weeks um, every day the correspondence of the planet and the element of the day of week exactly um, and after exactly. a few weeks you will find out hey wednesday is my day uh, you know i mean i'm exactly I mean, yeah, yeah. i'm simplifying a bit too much now but yeah but but um that's first steps actually oh yeah i think having a daily planetary practice is a beautiful way to get familiar with the correspondences and part of your practice mm -hmm. could be like you said just writing down the correspondences and uh, also making your own correspondences i think that's very important too it's not just to say like okay this book tells me that this corresponds to this and 
that's great. I think that's very important. But when we also say like, Hey, this feels mercurial to me on a personal level, I think that's really important that we incorporate our own personal sense of things into it. And that it's not just something that we're learning by rote, but that we're experiencing and integrating for ourselves. So, and I think starting with the basics and just learning the correspondences as they've been passed down to us. And as we know them to be, that's, that's the best place to start, but then to expand from there. Yeah. Yeah. Because the hermetic ship looks so big that I think some people are being deterred or, or because they, I never, I'll never cease that, you know, and, and that's also part of, of the mystery of your book, uh, to, to, to not to overwhelm the reader, even though it's in enormously dense. And if you carry on reading with all the bibliography that you have in the <laughs> last third of the book, I must say, um, you, you, you are there for your next seven lives, but, um, but, um, uh, at least, at least start with the small things and well, yeah. If, if, um, if it helps you, then, then it's good. And then, then you'll find out about that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Marlene, uh, seven, uh, last question, maybe, um, after those two books that you, that you have written or second one is when will be about to come out in eight months or so, um, any new plans? for other things we should know about, or maybe it's too early to talk about, or where do you, where do you walk? Where do you go with your art, with your work? Well, I am currently developing some coursework. So I'm hoping to have some coursework available for folks to work with this material, both the hermetic material and philosophy, and also the alchemical going through the four stages of the great work in a creative process. So I want to, have some stuff available for people probably by next summer. And I'm also conceptualizing a third book, but I have not started writing it just yet. Just brainstorming some ideas. And I don't want to say too much about that yet. I'm going to keep that hermetic secret. (laughs) Yes. And also I'm just uh, excited to get back to the studio and work on some, some paintings. I was going to say, but you won't give up painting for God's oh, no. sake, please. No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> good. Well, thank you for a lovely talk. Um, uh, I greatly enjoyed that and I'm sure our listeners did as well. What um, we just need to do, we need to already say we meet up again June, July next year to talk about the other book. And maybe until then, the, the hermeticism on the third book is already lifted and we can, we can know <laughs> a little bit more about that then. Maybe. Yeah. I would love that. <laughs> Great. So thank you so much. And, uh, well, good luck with all your projects and, um, well, let's stay in touch. Yes, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much, Rudolf. This has been a great pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Thank you. I'm not
Traditional Nubian music recorded on the shores of Lake Nasser in Egypt. That was the third and last musical piece in our episode number six of the Thought Service Podcast's ninth season. And we had the great pleasure to have as our guest Marlene Sevenbrenner to talk about hermetic philosophy and creative alchemy, about her life, about her art. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to her and I hope you enjoyed just as much listening to her. Thank you for listening, actually. Thank you, Marlene, for being with us. And thanks to all of you who make this show possible by being here and listening to it. And of course, also by contributing through Patreon. Please consider doing that if you like what you hear. Right. So this is the end of our episode And I would like to announce to you what will be next week's show. Well, and next week I have as my guest, Robert Gordon. Robert, who rather recently um, has written a book and published a book, which is called 21st Century's Rosicrucianism. And I think that's a very interesting approach. And he, in a bit of a similar way, like uh, Marlene, who we listened to today, talks about hermeticism in her book. He also, Robert, structures very well what is Rosicrucianism, how can we approach it in our century. Um, so please return next week to hear all about that. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy that as well, just as you did today. Great. So have a good week. Uh, stay tuned and I um, uh, hope you will enjoy next week's when you return. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.